Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Tony-nominated actor Mark Jacoby. Mark is currently starring as Neil Now in A Beautiful Noise, and his other Broadway credits include Elf, Sweet Charity, Ragtime, The Phantom of the Opera, Sweeney Todd, Man of La Mancha, Showboat, and Grand Hotel. He's also performed in The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Visit, Mame, The Student Prince, Grumpy Old Men, and more around the country. And now, without further ado, here's Mark Jacoby. Well, so I'd love to start by asking how you first became interested in performing. Uh, I I was blessed with good singing genes, uh, mostly through my father, who was a professional singer and a good one. And... um, so I and singing music was in the, my family. Every, everybody sang. Everybody played instruments. We, you know, we sang as a family. We weren't quite the Von Trapps, but you know, we uh, we did that. So I I I got uh, I first got on a stage because I could sing. Frankly, I mean, not because I could do anything else. And then as I started doing musicals. Uh, I became more and more interested in it as actually a way of life, uh, you know, which is a difficult one. Nobody's going to tell you otherwise. But um, yeah, I, I it was really following kind of the path of least resistance. It was something I could do. I could get employed, and I enjoyed it. And the 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 commitment came came later for me. It wasn't like oh my gosh, this is wonderful. I have to do it. It was more I can do it. Now I'm doing it. Now I see that I really appreciate it and enjoy it, and and I, I would like to make it my life's work. And was there a moment that you sort of think of as that turning point? Well, I did a lot of um, classical singing, uh, you know, serious singing, concertizing, and all that kind of stuff. But in the summer of 1978, I I got a summer stock job up in Maine at what was then called the Brunswick Music Theater. And uh, I did four shows there over the course of a summer. And uh, when I came home, I, I sort of said to myself, I'm going to emphasize that. I'm going to go more towards theater and lo- less towards legit classical singing. So I, I quit my church job. I, I had a job singing in church. I quit my synagogue job. I had a job singing at temple. Uh, and I, I prioritized theater. So that was, I, I don't know what it was about that summer, but I seemed to be, with all modesty, I seemed to be better at doing that than I was at classical singing. It seemed to be more my metier, as they say. So. And did you begin to take acting and dance classes or things like that, or did those come more naturally to you? Uh, I definitely, uh, I definitely immediately uh, took acting classes. I, I, I took voice lessons uh, for many years up until about 10 years ago. The dancing, not so much, although I did go to, I did go to classes like that would be maybe called dance movement for singers, that kind of thing, you know, uh, but I, it was too late for me to become an accomplished dancer. That wasn't going to happen. I, you know, I am pretty coordinated and I, I move well. And I did when I was young, I moved well, but, uh, that was never, I was never going to get jobs as a dancer. I, I might get jobs as a singer because I could also dance. So that's more, I did it more in that vein, you know, secondarily. And what was the process like of determining sort of what parts you were going to audition for? Well, uh, I, let's see, I, 
of course, I had an agent, of course, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say of course, because it's not automatic that you have an agent, but uh, I basically deferred to the judgment of my, my representation. I would look at, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the terminology of, of a breakdown, a breakdown comes yeah. out, and, you know, listing what, what they're looking for. And, you know, if I was right for it, gender wise, if back when gender was more specific, if I, if I was right for it gender wise, age wise, type wise, I would think, well, that's possibly something I, I could do. Um, so I, I didn't, I've never been very um, aggressive about exploring alternatives that one of the roles that I wound up doing the longest in New York was the Phantom in the Phantom of the Opera. And I saw Phantom of the Opera when it opened in New York. And I, I didn't think, oh, that's a role for me. Never crossed my mind that that was a role for me. Uh, but um, one of the people involved in the musical music department, uh, David Caddick's assistant, thought that I could do it. And she, she sort of nurtured me uh, to, to getting to a place where I could do the role. So, um, you know, I'm not one of those people who sees a role and thinks, oh, that's me. I, that's for me. I can do that. <laughs> And how did your Broadway debut in Sweet Charity come about? Well, uh, I was, at, when they were auditioning for that show, I was in Chicago uh, doing a show called Nine. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, uh, I was playing uh, Guido Contini, who's an Italian. And so I, I did a lot of work on an Italian dialect, uh, Italian accent. And I was, I kind of had the Italianness in my brain. And I was called in to audition for Vittorio Vidal, who is the Italian movie star in Sweet Charity. So I kind of had a, I kind of had a, an inside track on the role because I, I, I had all this Italianness in my mind. Uh, so I think I did well with, with the script and uh, I did well with the song and I, I they booked me. <laughs> And what was it like to work with Bob Fosse and, of course, be there right up until he died? Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't super, super young when I was in that show. I think I was 38 or 39, which is, you know, like the people I'm working with now who are making their Broadway debuts, many of them are just barely in their 20s. So, so but... Why do I say that? I say that because I was I was pretty much a novice and Bob Fosse was very influential to me. He was sort of my first mentor, the first person. He was the first biggie that I worked with. And uh, I became very impressionable under his under his uh, direction. And um, I love the guy. I, you know, obviously he is was a monumental choreographer, but uh, you know, I wish people could see him in rehearsal for, for the book of a, of a show. He, he was very interested in it. He was, he, he really gave a lot of attention and a lot of interest to the book scenes. Um, most of his friends, uh, by the time, by the time I, I knew Bob were writers, he was interested in writing. Um, so, uh, you know, it was great. And, you know, Gwen Verdon was, she was there assisting and uh, um, Neil Simon, Simon wrote the, you know, basically wrote the book. Bob got credit for it, but really Neil Simon was, thinking, you know, Cy Coleman and all those people, just all of a sudden, all these luminaries are everywhere you look. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was pretty exciting. It was pretty, pretty darn exciting. <laughs> And did you find that they all having been part of the original production wanted the revival to be somewhat similar or was there a lot of kind of rediscovery or reimagining? Yeah, I'm going to say yes to the first question. I think that they, the people that I just named and specifically Gwen and, and Bob, uh, wanted and expected to see uh, a recreation of the original uh, production, which I think was 1966. This was 1986. Uh, and uh, our star, Debbie Allen, was not 
particularly on board with that. So there, I'll be honest, there was a little friction there because Bob and Gwen tended to say, essentially do it this way. And uh, Debbie was more, I'm going to do it my way. I, you know, I, I have my own personality and it's, you know, I'm not Gwen Verdon and 20 years have gone by and I'm going to shape it for myself. Uh, so that was, that was an interesting dynamic too, to see that, that friction uh, play out. You know, I was just a, an observer, but as I say, I was very much uh, a babe in the woods. So, I, you know, I thought I had the, I had, I had the benefit of the best direction I could have ever had. So I didn't, I did, I wasn't very contentious about it, you know. Right. And yeah. what kind of advice or insights did Fossey kind of give to you about the role? Oh, he, he not, not so much about the role, but just in general, one thing I remember, and this was actually ironically and coincidentally, the last time I saw him before he died, we had rehearsal that day. It was opening night in Washington for the tour. And we had rehearsal and he worked on some of the scenes and left the theater and dropped dead anyway. Uh, and there's a scene that, that uh, I had with, with Debbie uh, when when we meet, we're in a fancy schmancy nightclub. And, uh, and I remember Bob saying, remember, it's very, it's private. This is a private conversation between the two of you. There are other people around in the club, but they're, they're not paying attention. And those people out there in the seats are, they're eavesdropping. They're, you know, they're not, they're not supposed to be hearing this. It's, it's very private between the two of you. So, so don't do it for them. Now, obviously there are realities in the theater. You have to project, for example, you have to be heard. Sometimes it's, it's important to have your, your face out more, for example, things like that. But as far as the playing of the scene, uh, most of what we see on the stage between two people, at least, is intimate. It's, it's private it, and the audience is intrigued because they, they know they're basically witnessing something that is not for them to to hear. I don't know, it made an impression on me and I've never forgotten it. And if you are comfortable talking about it, I'd love to know what it was like on that night and sort of finding out about it and continuing to do the show and all that. Well, everybody knew, of course, that Bob had a heart condition, uh, which was more or less documented in the film, All That Jazz. Right. Uh, so, and that, you know, he had, he had had um, heart events, as they call them, and uh, but they it, he died in the late afternoon. But the, it was not announced to the cast until after the performance that night. We opened the show uh, at at the uh, party. Basically, they announced to us that Bob had passed away, and it was. Um, it, it was just a, an amazing <laughs> turn of events that uh, I, none of us anticipated, at least not for that, not for that night. And, um, you know, it was back in that era, among all the things that Bob Fossey was, he was very uh, instrumental in diversifying his casts. I mean, he gave employment to a lot of uh, people of color, minority people. And I, I think many of those people in our cast felt a particular loss of, the, of that, of that uh, quality in, in him. Uh, not, not that day, but on the tour. So weeks before I was having a conversation with him and he, he sort of tongue in cheek said, you know, I'm never gonna die. You know, he was he was kidding around, and and I it was it was his way of saying, "I'm afraid of death." You know, I I can't confront the reality of death that it is inevitable, and um, and it, it just seems so ironic. Then uh, a week or two later, when he died, right. And another a great kind of director and choreographer that you worked with right after that was Tommy Toon on Grant Hotel. Yeah. And what was that collaboration like? 
Well, I was a I was a standby when we started Grand Hotel, and I I briefly took over the role of the Baron, uh, for I think two and a half months or something. Uh, Tommy is very special in his vision, and uh, that show was just beautiful. It was it was beautiful uh, in its. It was, a, you know, they say the theater is, is about language and film is about vi the visual aspect, but uh, that was a beautiful show to look at. And just, it was just intriguing and interesting to watch. And I attribute it to him. He definitely was special. Now, why he sort of stopped directing, uh, I don't really know. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I uh, he he was really. They talk about how Prince being a you know a concept director. I I would I would call Tommy Tuna a visualist, a, a a graphic designer almost. I mean, there were things in that show that you just just caught your eye and you couldn't take your eye off of them. Uh, it was it was really something. And. Okay, and that show, of course, had its own kind of like tragic event involved with David Carroll passing away and being replaced by Brent Barrett. And as the standby at that point, what were your sort of perceptions of that or reactions? Well, you know, that was that was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and um, we knew that David was HIV positive. Uh, at that time, he, he seemed to be doing well when we when we tried the show out in Boston, he was doing well. And when, when it opened in New York, he was doing well. But uh, uh, the reason I wound up doing it for two and a half months before uh, Brent came in was because David could no longer he couldn't do it. He was getting too sick. So it was very sad, uh, very sad. Um, to lose him, I mean, that was a, he was an exceptional talent and a, a remarkable singer. And perhaps, you know, he actually died at the recording studio. They, they started to record the, the cast album and he did some of it. And I, th I think he died in, in the, the restroom at the recording studio. So he didn't, he didn't even finish, finish the, uh, the cast recording. So many people from that show are gone, Lilian Montevecchi and, uh, you know, David, of course, uh, very, very sad. Yeah. And with that show and with um, Sweet Charity being so successful, do you find that you can often tell sort of how well a show will do? No, I don't. I think people, I think there are people who can, I think there are people who have that, who have that perception quite, quite acutely. Uh, I, you know, it's got nothing to do with me, but <laughs> I've never been in a flop. And, uh, you know, uh, eminent performers of all kinds, singers, actors, dancers, if they have long careers, they're in a flop it you know it happens and it's not attributable to anything that they contributed or failed to contribute but but uh, i don't know the experience yet of a, of a show failing of you know and if you look at the list of shows that never got to say 100 performances it's some of them are very noteworthy uh, here at a beautiful noise we're pushing 400 shows. And that's just since we opened, that doesn't count previews, it doesn't count the, the Boston tryout. So I, the answer to your question is no, I don't have that keen perception to be able to say, yeah, that, that is gonna make it. In the case of this show, the one I'm in now, I, for example, didn't, I didn't know what a huge fan base Neil Diamond has. I mean, the, we can run this show without anybody ever coming who's unfamiliar with Neil Diamond. There are enough of them and there's enough return business. I mean, people, there are people who have seen this over 15 times because they're Neil Diamond fans. So, and may, that may be true of some of the other jukeboxes, you know, maybe it's, it's basically the fan base of the source of the material, but um, 
um, but but the other thing, the original shows, I I can never tell. <laughs> <laughs> and with this show, with the beautiful noise, what has it been like to kind of inhabit this figure that so many people love? And I know he's been involved with the show. Yeah. Uh, well, he, uh, you know, he he is. Uh, I'm not telling any tales out of school. He's he's quite elderly, and he's he's sick. He has a serious disease, uh, and uh, so you know his his capability to be an active participant is limited. Uh, that said, he's he's came to our rehearsals before we went to Boston. He was at the first preview in Boston. He was at opening night in New York. Um, and he, uh, you know, we have FaceTimed with him as a cast on various, you know, like his birthday was in January, we FaceTimed him and all that kind of stuff. And he's very supportive and he's like so many, I shouldn't say so many, but when people get eminent, uh, you, you start to, I, at least I do, I start to assume, oh, they're going to have a particular way of being that is going to be reflected in the fact that they're important. And some of the people that I've worked with, I'm thinking right now a little bit of Stephen Sondheim, could be very, for lack of a better word, ordinary, just, just a guy, just a person who could, who was capable of small talk, you know, sort of insignificant conversation that always kind of surprised me with, with uh, Sondheim that he, that not everything that came out of his mouth was brilliant. It would sometimes it was just, you know, something that anybody would say. And with with Neil Diamond, you know, he he became a very uh, he kind of he was one of the early uh, performers in big concerts. It went way over with with the presentation, the glitter, the glamour, the smoke, the fog, the lights, the you know, huge, huge pr productions. But but in person, he's he's a very simple uh, unaffected guy. He's just, he's very sincere. I think he's very straightforward. Uh, there's no artifice to him that I can perceive. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of a warming thing, you know, that, uh, he's just really, he's really nice. And he's, I, I know he's thrilled that this show is being done. He's thrilled. He, he more or less wanted it. You know, he saw the other jukebox musicals that, and he kind of thought, well, why don't I have one? I should have one of these. <laughs> and in point of fact, now he does. You know. And it's a great tribute to him. Uh, I think I, you know, I have to be honest. I, I was not a huge Neil Diamond fan, and he is of my era. I mean, logically, I should have known more about Neil Diamond than I did. But, uh, I mean, some of the songs I, I recognized, I remember hearing them but I could not have told you they were Neil Diamond songs. Even Sweet Caroline, which is probably his most famous song. Yeah, oh yeah, I've heard that, but I, I oh, that's Neil Diamond. So my my ignorance of popular music, even the popular music of, of my day is tremendous. <laughs> it's tremendous ignorance. Uh, um, so I, I'm not the person to be able to judge uh, how well it represents him, but. Uh, the minute I read the script and heard about the project, I said to myself, the, the, the success of this is going to be a, determined by how the musical numbers are rendered. Mm -hmm. it's, it's basically, yeah, it's a, it's not a concert, but it is a, a, you know, it's a presentation of his music. And if it's done well, it will succeed. And if it's not done well, it, it won't. And the people that I know who are huge Neil Diamond fans that I've talked to seem very, very happy with it. They, they really, really like it. Um, so now maybe I wouldn't be in a position to hear negative remarks. People would be disinclined, shall we say, to say and care for it. But um, and it, you know, I don't. You're a theater guy. I don't have to tell you. It didn't get good reviews. And it didn't get it, it. We didn't do well at all in the awards season, you know. So, not everybody likes it. But a lot of the shows that got multiple nominations and good reviews have closed, and we're not. So that's something, at least. 
And when you're playing a role that either is completely based on a real person like this one or has some kind of grounding in a historical period like ragtime or something like that, do you do research? Do you enjoy doing research? Uh, I don't have to do, as opposed to ragtime, for this, I don't have to do research into the period because I remember the period. It was my era. Uh, you know, it's the people in our show who are in their 20s <laughs> maybe that has to have to do the research. Um, my research search consisted almost exclusively of watching Neil Diamond in interviews and public appearances and getting a sense of, you know, who he is. Uh, I don't... Um, now, I, I recognize that a public figure is not necessarily the same in an interview as they are in real life. They're, you know, they, most people, I think, just instinctively present themselves or, or try to present themselves in a way that, that they think is good. But, but, I, but again, I think he's a very real kind of a guy. And I, my, my instinct is that you can learn a lot about who he is simply by watching him talk to other people, including interviewers. Um, the concert aspect, the voice, the way the, the, the way the voice was produced is not as important to me because I, you know, I don't, in our show, I don't really sing with one exception. And my concept and our director's concept is when I sing, it's not Neil Diamond performing. It's Neil Diamond having a breakthrough in his therapy. It, it's it's representative. It's not it's not presented as you know this older Neil Diamond singing. Right. Uh, he's just said to his doctor, "I I can't I can't perform anymore. I can't do it." So when I do sing, it's it's not it's the concept is it's not singing. It's what's going on with with him. So I don't feel that it's important or even that I should try to replicate the way Neil Diamond sounded when he sang, as opposed to young Neil, who is presenting uh, Neil Diamond in his prime when he was performing. And so you mentioned your long tenure doing the role of the Phantom and that you originally hadn't really seen yourself in that role, but what was the process like of kind of inhabiting it and doing it for so long? Oh, well, it was tough. I, I mean, it was, it was one of those two ends of the spectrum kind of thing. It was, there was enormous amount of responsibility at that time when I did it in the early nineties, because uh, it was kind of the Hamilton of, you know, it was the show. People bought their tickets a year and a half in advance and built their vacations around it. And when you went to the when you went to the theater to play the Phantom, there was a tremendous sense of there was an onus. Uh, you know, I've got to. This is not just <laughs> a fun afternoon in the theater. This is important to people, and you know, so there's that. And it's a hard role. You know, the as far as a, being a singer is concerned, by the by the time I finished my stint in Phantom, I really couldn't sing anything else. I could sing Phantom, but the voice had kind of uh, atrophied, you know, it's like it was locked into this this Phantom thing. And I had to basically shut it down and start over and let the voice rebuild itself because I could sing Phantom pretty well, pretty consistently, but I, I really didn't, I couldn't sing anything else well. It just didn't sound good. I, uh, so there was that. Uh, much, much was made uh, in people who are into that show about the limited time that the Phantom is actually on stage. It's not, you know, Christine is on stage much more than the Phantom is, but <clears throat> That's a little misleading because it's a very active job. You're either in makeup to get ready to do the show, or you're going someplace in the theater, not just on stage. You know, you're going up into the angel, or you're going up into one of the boxes, or you're going down through the stage through a trapdoor and then coming back up. And then in between, you're always getting the the makeup um, touched up. So there's no downtime, even though there's the, the the amount of actual stage time is limited. 
um, I was very glad to have done it. It was, it was an honor and it was a big thing for me. But when it was over, I, I was exhausted and it took a lot out of me. It really did. And when you are doing a long running show like that or Ragtime or so many others that you've been a part of, how do you decide sort of when to leave? And yeah, that's an excellent question and it's a tough one. There are people who ride a show into the sunset. You know, I, I don't have to tell you people who have, well, one of the guys in our show did uh, Lion King, I think for something like 15 years. Wow. Dr. Robbins. Uh, and there were people in Phantom who, uh, George Lee Andrews, I think, set the record for a principal role in a Broadway show. And I can't remember what the number was, but it was around 20 years he did it. Um, I, I don't think anybody thinks it's good for the, the instrument, the person, to do a show as long as I've done some shows. Uh, the three shows that we've kind of talked, well, we didn't talk about Showboat, but Phantom of the Opera, Showboat, and Ragtime, uh, I did each of those pretty much one right after another for around three years. So the decade of the 90s, I did three shows. <laughs> Um, and I and I worked pretty much the whole decade, and I, you know, as as fortunate as I was to do that, and as as financially good as it was, I don't think it's really healthy. Mm -hmm. I think, I, I think, you know, I, the answer. What is the answer to the question? How do you how do you decide when to leave? And basically, when something else comes up. I left all of those because something else came up and I had a contract that allowed me to get out to do the next thing. So, um, you know, when just on the business side of it, when we started this show, all the principals signed year contracts with no outs, meaning you're committed. I mean, if you have to take a medical leave or something, that's one thing, but you can't leave to do something else. Uh, when we renegotiated uh, last month, I got in my contract that I can leave um, for anything, really. I, I, I can give four weeks notice and leave. So um, if, you know, if and when something else comes along, I probably will do that, not because I don't like it here, but because I just think it's time, you know, you, it's time to exercise other muscles and use other, you know, uh, other uh, sources. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. And a similar kind of question is, what would make you turn down a role? And have there been like major roles that you've turned down? I have a pretty strong, I, I don't want to call it an ethic, but I, you know, I've always said it's better to work than not to work. And sometimes, sometimes the, the worse the pro, the the project is the more edifying it is <laughs> you can learn a lot doing bad material um so uh, the only things that i have ever turned down that i can think of have been because i had something else because i couldn't do both and i chose one over the other or something that i f felt i simply could not do that i was incapable i think i got an offer to do Jean Valjean in Les Mis once, and that's not a role that I can do. I just can't do it. I never, I could never do it when I was younger, let alone now. Not that I, now I'm too old to do it, but. So if there's something that is called for in the role that I, I just, uh, you know, I don't think anything is gained by going out and trying to, and embarrassing yourself. And I'm talking about actual skills. I'm not talking about, oh, I don't feel like that person, or I don't, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the role requiring something that is beyond my capabilities. And you mentioned Showboat, and there, of course, you were working with two great theater legends, Hal Prince and Elaine Stritch. And what was it like to be in the room with them? And... Well, how I had experience with, because he directed Phantom, and Phantom, for me, came before Showboat. Uh, so uh, I had I had not worked with Elaine. Um, Hal is an was an interesting guy. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to uh, in any way 
criticize. He's not an actor. He was not an actor's director. He he basically re relied on his cast to bring to him uh, what the role should have. And if 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 it wasn't there, he was more likely to think, well, I cast it wrong than to think I'm going to work on it and I'm going to shape it. Uh, he was, you know, he, he was a great visualist and he knew how to put a show together, how to give it a pace, how to give it a point of view, how to give it a, a look, all of those things, very strong. And he's a very, very nice man. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, he, when I, when I was working uh, on Showboat, at one point, uh, I, I wrote to him, this, this was before most people had email, by the way, and I wrote to him and said, I have some questions. And he called me on the phone. He said, call me anytime. He was down in Florida where he lived uh, in the wintertime. And I said, geez, how Prince is calling me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, and you know, he treated people, he would answer letters and he would answer phone calls and he would, he was a very personable guy. And I liked him, I liked him very much. Elaine was difficult. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, she, you know, she was a great talent, but she was, she was a person who I think who needed, needed something uh, contentious around her. She needed to be fighting about something all the time. Uh, some people attribute it to alcoholism. She was a recovering alcoholic. Uh, that's not gossip. I mean, she would tell you that. Right. Um, uh, and uh, that some of her personality traits, people who are familiar with addiction and uh, will say that that's characteristic of it to keep friction backstage all the time. And she, you know, she, she could be the most charming person ever. You go out to dinner with her and, it, you know, she'll just charm your pants off. But then in the workplace, she seemed to, to, always need to have a, a gripe, a problem, a complaint, or something she won't do, or something re she refuses to do, or something somebody else should be doing that they're not doing, that kind of thing. So we had, we had a little bit of a frictional relationship. Last time I saw her, she came to see the Sweeney Todd that I did, and she came backstage, and she could not have been lovelier. And she was very complimentary, and I appreciated it enormously. That's Elaine. Yeah. And when you're doing a revival, something like Showboat or Sweet Charity, do you like to look back at previous productions? And uh, I do. I have done that. I, I know there are people who don't, and they don't as a matter of policy because they, they want to bring their own thing to it. And I, I appreciate that. I, I can see that as a legitimate way of working. I'm just... Maybe I'm more interested in theater as, you know, the literature of it, the history of it. What, uh, oh, they did that in that production. Oh, that was the person who played that. Oh, isn't that interesting? They cut that. Or, you know, I find that kind of thing very interesting. So I don't really, you know, I don't usually look at productions for, um, you know, ideas of what to do or, but, but just my curiosity about the, the piece itself. Uh, before I, when I found out I was going into Phantom, uh, I went, well, I had seen the original production. I went out to California and saw the Los Angeles production, which uh, Michael Crawford was doing. And I went up to Toronto and saw Cole Wilkinson do it. Mm. So I, you know, I, I visited other productions, but, but Phantom is sort of choreographed. I mean, the staging that you, you in that production, not the newer one that was out on tour, but in that production, the staging was the staging. The Phantom did, as far as blocking and stage movement, did the exact same thing as it was originally done. Uh, it, was, it was set. So, um, yeah, I guess that's my answer to that. <laughs> Am I talking too long? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> And you mentioned that Hal Prince was the kind of director who sort of expected the actor to come in with their own performance. And do you prefer that style of working or do you prefer a director who sort of works with actors more? Yeah, that's a, that is a very good question. And I, I 
kind of want to say it's a fine line. There are directors who, many directors who simply want to say, do it this way. A lot of them pretend that they're not doing that, but they are. They know they are. The actor knows they are. You know, there's a big thing in, in, in theater about don't give a line reading. You know, a director should not say, say it like this. And yeah, but you can tell many times that directors know how they want it to be said, but they, they can't just say, say it like this. And you'll, it's, it's amusing to watch them kind of, how am I going to convey this without simply saying, say it like this. <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's a, I think it's a fine line, but I don't, I don't, I think how, for example, went too far one way with basically just expecting to see it. Uh, but I think more directors go too far the other way and they, they have in their mind what it's supposed to be and they're more than willing to give it to you, to this. Uh, so I think it's, I think there is a happy medium in there somewhere that many directors uh, find. And I guess that would be my preference. Some guidance, but not dictatorial guidance. And in addition, even to your Broadway career, you've done many great roles in stock and regionally and all that. And has there been one that you found especially challenging to kind of figure out as an actor? Uh, huh, that's an interesting, um, I'm thinking of, uh, do you know Yasmin Reza? She wrote art. She wrote like times three. Um, oh, what's that other thing that Tony Soprano was in? Um, um, can't remember the name of it. Um, I did, I did her play Lifetimes three and I found out at, uh, St. Louis, St. Louis uh, rep and but I guess this, the repertory theater of St. Louis is the actual name. And uh, it, it was a character, unlike anything I played, a very apologetic and um, person lacking in confidence, lacking in any kind of sense of self. And that, that was interesting to me. Um, I mostly, um, I mostly, what I enjoy doing is plays. I would rather be in a play, like way better be in a play than in a musical. Um, mm. I just think there's there's so much more in the tag. You just don't have time in a musical with a book to, to explore. There's not as much to explore. You really have to kind of self-generate it um, at times. I mean, I loved Ragtime, fabulous score, just a wonderful, wonderful, show my one criticism of it uh when i was doing it and still is it's almost over musicalized there's all the music is terrific but there's just so much of it <laughs> um so um yeah yeah i guess that that's it um you know i i, I have played a lot back when i was young you know i played a lot of standard traditional leading men you know the guy who sings the love song kisses the girl uh and so to, to play something that is a little off center is more interesting not because those people are more interesting than a conventional leading man but just because i haven't had as many opportunities to do it so i'm, I'm drawn to you know things that are i mean nobody would call phantom of the opera a traditional leading uh, the phantom a traditional leading man so that kind of thing, you know, I'm playing really a terrorist who's dropping chandeliers on people's heads. And, you know, um, so that is interesting, you know. Yeah. And two of those women who you played opposite in sort of a more romantic role were Rebecca Luker and Maren Maisie, both of whom are great talents who left too soon. And what was it like to be opposite both of them? Uh, well, they, I became very close with both of them and I, I loved them. Uh, and, you know, they were both great singer. I mean, I didn't sing with Marin that much. We played husband and wife, but, but I duetted with Rebecca a lot in Showboat. 
and she was just such a she was um, she made you feel safe uh, she was such a strong singer such a you know it's one thing to sing a solo and it's another thing to sing with another person and there's protection there there's insulation it's uh and she really personified that in my experience i mean she i i never feared when i was you know i i was a very am i was a very cautious and insecure singer i always went on stage thinking about what's going to go wrong not oh boy i get to show what i can do it was like you know disaster is right around the corner and i i never felt that with rebecca i felt that you know i'm i'm protected we're we're a partnership and you know <laughs> so that was that was great uh yeah and it is you know they didn't die super young but they didn't they died younger than they should have <laughs> yeah. it's um so it yeah it's it's hard it's hard for me to think about that because and with ragtime specifically i'd be curious to know about the process of going through the tryout in toronto and kind of developing it yeah well uh Shobo did the same thing by the way both of those shows tried out in Toronto for almost a year, if you count rehearsal. So, you know, I spent a lot of my life in Toronto. Um, it was just, it was big, you know, that's a big, big show with so many elements and uh, to it, both those shows. I mean, the, the, the cast of Showboat had over 70 people in it, if you count the children, and you should. <laughs> uh, and uh, Ragtime had over 50, which is an enormous cast by today's standards. I mean, the show I'm in now, we have 18 people in the cast. So give you some perspective on, of that. And just, just the coordination of it, just the, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to put this up, how to stage this. It, it was an enormous undertaking. I'm always surprised when I see that people are doing, a, you know, like educational institutions, colleges, even high schools will do ragtime. And I think, how do, how do you undertake that? It's just gigantic. Uh, uh, but, you know, one thing that we, we like, I think, is to be present at the creation. So it's one thing to do Showboat, which has existed since 1927. It's another thing to be there as it's being created, an original. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly value the shows I've done that have been revivals, but the, to, to be in, in the original cast is a special experience and to watch it be formed and frequently to be a participant in it. You know, well, wait a minute, what if, what if we did this? And sometimes the creatives will say, yeah, let's, let's give that a try. And that there, there's, that's a special joy, you know, to be a contributor. Uh, I know that's true of the show I'm in now. A lot of the choreography came from the dancers. The choreographer would give an image or an idea or an emotion, you know, uh, anger, go. And, mm. and the dancers would let their bodies respond to that particular stimulus. And then the choreographer would say, yeah, let's let's have a look at that so a lot of what you see in a beautiful noise came out of the very people who are doing it uh, i think that's pretty cool and that and to a certain extent that was true of ragtime as well i mean we we were participants right and i recently um interviewed peter friedman and he oh. was and he was talking about how he found doing the long show to be kind of a emotionally tiring and I'm curious if you felt the same way about of course it's a very long show and has a lot of drama in it a ragtime yeah yeah um nothing like what I'm doing now I'll be honest mm. uh, uh ragtime for father it does have its emotional arc and I like the role and I a lot of people say it's a thankless role I don't feel that way at all I was happy to be doing it and I think it's interesting. And if you if you read the book, it's it's really interesting in the book, The Role of Father. 
um, you know, what I'm, and, and what Peter did in ragtime, you know, he had a lot, it was, it, it was a, a range of emotions that exceeded it, I think, what is co properly called upon for father, uh, you know, with his little girl and protecting her, taking care of her and looking out for her and going from being a poor, poor immigrant struggling on the street to be a highly successful filmmaker, you know, those kinds of things. Um, father had a journey, but not, not as extreme one. In this show, uh, you know, this, this is a man in psychotherapy and, you know, that's a, that's a tough gig. <laughs> that's, that's uh, a difficult situation. So uh, there was so much going on with ragtime that had nothing to do with the production. Uh, you know, Livent of Canada mm. was basically going bankrupt at the time that we were doing ragtime. And many people, I don't know about Peter, but I know many people in the cast had money in Livent. Uh -huh. They were investors. They weren't just cast members. And they lost everything everything not not they took a loss on their investment they the investment was gone right Nothing. so and that was all wrought up in this you know show that calls on such emotion it was quite a thing the other thing is we were we we came into new york a year later than we could have and many people thought we should have come in the previous year uh 1997 we came in in 1998, and in the Tonys, we were up against Lion King right. that won the Tony. And I think a lot of people had a bitterness about that. Why on earth didn't you bring this thing in last year? I mean, most people cannot name the show that won Best Musical in 97. It was Steel Pier. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, in other words, the presumption is Ragtime would have won a Tony for Best Musical if it had if the producer hadn't dragged his feet. <laughs> and what was it like recently to have this reunion with the full original cast? And oh, that was that was just remarkable. It was just remarkable. Um, it was wonderful. One one is reminded of what a fabulous musical it is. I mean, it's just tremendous. I think I think it's a tremendous score. And then you know, seeing so many people, the majority of of whom I had not seen for 25 years. So it's not just getting together with old colleagues, it's getting together with colleagues after 25 years. Um, and, you know, you, you probably know as well as anybody does, that old people talk a lot about being old. It's just funny, I mean, like, you know, you see somebody, hi, how are you? What's, oh gosh, it's so great to see you. And almost immediately, can you believe how old we are? <laughs> And I said, well, what did you think was going to happen? It's, it's, it's arithmetic. It, it's 25 years later. We're all 25 years older, but, but we're all like acting like this is some unusual phenomenon. And can you believe it? And, oh my God, I can't do it. It's just, it just tickles me about old people. And I always, when I was young, I always swore, I am not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about being old all the time. It's boring. Nobody cares. And it's, absolutely inevitable if you're lucky enough to not die young. And, and yet I do find myself doing a little bit. Oh, Jesus, 25, you know, such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you talked about the kind of joy of being part of an original show and two shows that you did in that aspect, but not when they reached Broadway or one of them didn't reach Broadway was The Skin of Our Teeth and The Visit, both with Kander and Ebb. And what was it like to work on those two shows in their kind of development? Well, Skin of Our Teeth was, it was just a, a week long, uh, basically a reading. So I don't have, you know, I remember doing it, of course, and I enjoyed doing it and I liked it, uh, but uh, I, you know, it, it wasn't that impactful. Um, the visit was a different situation uh, for me because I did everything of that show. I did all the preliminary readings. I did the workshop. I did the production at the Goodman in Chicago. 
I did the production uh, down at uh, the Signature outside of Washington. Uh, we did a benefit of it. Um, so I did it a lot. And finally, they did it up at Williamstown uh, Theater Festival. And they asked me to do it. And I had a conflict and I, I didn't think it was ever going to come to Broadway. You know, it, it, we did it in, at the Goodman. Uh, we were doing the show on 9-11. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that was, that was almost like the pandemic that we just had. It just basically shut things. Nothing was happening. And so we didn't come into New York, which we thought we would. And then when we did it at Signature, there was a big financial collapse and we didn't come in. And I said, I, I can't put any more... I can't put any more time and effort into this show. I mean, it's, it, and yeah. I have to go up to Williamstown and live in a dormitory. And no, I don't think so. And of course, that production came in. <laughs> so that's, that's, those are the breaks. And I'd be curious to know if there was a show that you worked on sort of off Broadway around the country like that, that you especially felt should have come in that didn't, maybe like The Nutty Professor or Summer you worked on. Oh, summer! Wow, man, you're good. Where do you get all this stuff? I, I for you know more about me than I do. Um, well, this goes back to one of your earlier questions. I don't. I'm not a person who has a sense of what should come in or might come in or why it would or anything like that. Uh, I've certainly worked on things that I've liked. Uh, I liked summer. Uh, I thought that was quality but I don't I don't get a feeling of oh this is gonna this is gonna happen I worked on a couple of things that did come in and I was not asked to do them uh, but neither of them did very well there was a revival of Gigi a few years ago that did not do particularly well and there was a piece called uh, it should have been you and I did <clears throat> the last reading of that and I, I I liked that I thought it was really funny and really good but I didn't get to do it so, but no, I, I don't remember thinking, oh, this better, this should come in. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sensitive to that. It's a, it's a failure. I mean, I, I should be sensitive to it. <clears throat> and what was Summer about for those who don't know it? Oh, it, it was basically, uh, I mean, the, the main plot line was, uh, a man who had who was the caretaker of a young girl, kind of like Judge Turpin and Sweeney Todd, kind of that situation. And yes, he fell in love with her, and and uh, he 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 didn't proposition her in any uh, in any ugly way, but he made clear to her that he was in love, and and she she couldn't take it, and she left him, and he you know it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy of a, a love that couldn't be, <clears throat> basically. And so in talking about Sweeney Todd, how did that role first come to you in the production? Well, that was uh, John Doyle's uh, uh, production. He was the director uh, and uh, he, it was basically an idea that came from a production that was done in England uh, where the cast plays the instruments uh, and so a major part of the audition was uh, playing whatever instrument you play. So that narrowed the talent pool. Uh, in other words, a lot of people can play judge can play the role of Judge Turpin, but if you play the trumpet and can you know all of a sudden the talent pool comes way down. So I I simply auditioned for it. I mean, uh, my agent said, you know do you play an instrument? I said, well, I played the trumpet for a long to all through college and, and afterwards they said, well, do you want to do this? And I thought, geez, I haven't picked it up for a while. <laughs> so I, I sort of furiously tried to get myself in shape to play and I went in and played adequately and uh, it happened. I, I got the part. So I'm not the, I'm not the uh, prototypical Judge Turpin. Uh, I wasn't then, I, I don't know what I am now, but uh, you know, it's, John Doyle said he didn't, he didn't, I remember him saying, no, it's, it's not a guy with 
soup on his tie. It's, you know, it's not a, an ogre. It's, he's a respectable man. He's a, you know, he would, so I, I guess he found me respectable. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that having to play the music as you were singing it added kind of a pressure to it, especially with having Sondheim sort of in the room? Yes, and yes, <laughs> Sondheim in the room. Uh, and the song, the, the main song that the judge has, Joanna, Joanna, so suddenly a woman, it's not easy. I mean, the note, it, you gotta, it's, I'm a pretty good musician for a singer, but I had to really study those intervals to get them correct. And, uh, and I did. Um, I didn't worry about Sondheim and the trumpet playing. I mean, I, I did adequately with that, but I, you know, if you're singing a Stephen Sondheim song, many times, you know, it's very sophisticated music for musical theater. It's not, you know, no offense, but it's not uh, Richard Rogers. It's it's not that tonal sometimes that, you know, I, di I did a production of Sweeney Todd out in California and played Sweeney. And there are times when the orchestra is in one time signature and the vocal is in a different time signature, like they're in three, four time and you're in six, eight time. And, and you know, it's very, very difficult. It's just, you know, I, I want to say, Steve, you're just showing off. You're just showing off. You didn't have to write it that way. And what was it like to work too with Patti LuPone, who's of course a great star? Yeah, she's, you know, she's crazy. I, I don't mean, I don't mean literally crazy, but she's, she is a wild personality, a lot of fun to be around. You know, she played the tuba in that, in that production. And yeah, I, I enjoyed being around her. Um, um, I guess, she, I mean, the last I heard of her, she says she's leaving Actors Equity. Over right, right. But I, I don't know, I don't know if that it will stick or not. It's hard <laughs> to imagine her not performing. And what is it like in a role like Judge Turpin figuring out how to kind of frighten the audience? Because that is a very frightening role. <laughs> well, I would say that I'll give you an actor's answer, <laughs> an actor's an actor studio answer. I, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about the result. Uh, I think it's important that I don't. Hmm. Uh, I, first of all, I think in Sweeney and with Judge Turpin, it's largely in the circumstance. Uh, you know, the, the frightening aspect of it is given. And if you start trying to show it, display it, or do it, I, that, is, that is a slippery slope and a da dangerous one. You know, you're, you're just one short step away from saying, did you see that? See what I did there? See, see how scary that was? And when you do that, that's you you know you got to tear it down and start over you so this goes back to Fosse a little bit it's very private I'm not trying Judge Turpin isn't trying to scare anybody I don't think what he's doing and what he thinks and what he wants is scary but for the moment he's you know now he's he threatens uh Anthony you know uh, the lover of, of Joanna but he's uh, well that's my answer I, I don't I don't I didn't think, how am I going to be scary? I didn't think that, and I and I don't want to think that. And with your next um, three shows, with Sweeney Todd, Elf, and A Beautiful Noise on Broadway, they were a little farther apart than had been in the '90s. And was that kind of on purpose, or just sort of how it happened? Just how it happened. I mean, there, you know, honestly, there. When a person reaches my age, there is less to do, and if a person's career has been based primarily or at least originally on singing there's less to sing and nobody really wants to hear a man my age sing and if you do you don't really want it well i did uh, i did the national tour of wicked as the, the wizard and uh the problem i had with the role was i don't want to put this wrong but but i'll take a risk singing too well uh <laughs> You, um, Joe Mantello, the, the director of Wicked, very much wants that role to be a, like a man on the street, not a, not a performance. 
And, uh, you know, I've done, I've gone up for commercials like that, where, uh, you know, a man on the street, sing a, sing a, sing a verse of Jingle Bells. And, but, but we don't want singers. We want ordinary people singing. I have a terrible time doing that. And I have a terrible time making the wizard just a guy who happens to be carrying a tune. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's not a lot to do in that, in that regard, but I, I've been working all that time, but mostly in regional theater or the like. What I'd love to ask is, I know you said that you don't really see roles and think that you should do them, but is there one that you either would like to do or would like to have done? What kind of role? Or really any in, in a musical? Oh. Or well, I mentioned, I always say this, if I'm asked that, I mentioned Yasmin Reza, who wrote art, and I've always wanted to be in that play. Mm. It's, uh, <clears throat> it was done on Broadway in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, late, late 90s. Alan Alda was in it, um, Victor Garber. And um, there are, it's, it's basically a three character play, three friends. I could, there's two of them that I could do and I, I've never gotten to do it and I've always wanted to. Art. And then the last question I'd love to ask is with such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Well, <clears throat> I, I hate to call it advice, but I will tell you what has been my point of view and I've already referenced it. Um, I believe in working. I, I, I know a lot of people in the business who, you know, wait in essence for a big break uh, or, you know, that role isn't good enough or I don't want to go out of town or whatever. I, I believe in working. And if you're not working, if you're not, if you don't actually have a job, definitely be in class if you can always be working at your craft, always. <clears throat> the teacher that was most influential for me was a man named Michael Howard. He passed away a little over a year ago. And <clears throat> I think he was 95, 96, something like that. <clears throat> and he believed you should always be working. No matter how old you are, no matter how whatever, always, you're always an actor. If you're an actor, you're always an actor. It's not like other professions. You may not have very many jobs, but you're still an actor and you still have to work at it. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Broadway and cabaret star Sally Mays. Sally Mays was Tony-nominated for her performance in She Loves Me, and she has also appeared on Broadway in Urban Cowboy, Welcome to the Club, and Steel Magnolias. She's also recorded five solo albums, and on Saturday, December 2nd at 9.30pm, she will be singing the songs of her storied career in Now and Then at the Green Room 42. You won't want to miss that show or that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.